All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn in them to Genesis chapter 6, if you will. Genesis chapter 6. And again this morning, we step back into time, into a period of time called the antediluvian world. And from Genesis chapter 4 to Genesis chapter 5, we now see that 10 generations have passed since Adam to Noah, a period of 1,656 years. The average lifespan of the individual at that time was 857 years old. Adam and Eve, we see, have had a third son to take the place of Abel, in which the Messiah would come. Enoch has been taken up as a picture of the rapture of the church. Methuselah outlived all by living 969 years. And all of this is the beginning and the movement towards Jesus coming 2,000 years later. Many people don't realize that the antediluvian world at that time conservatively existed of 7 billion people. That's how many people were on the earth when God judged the earth with the flood. In chapter 6, verse 6, though, we find that God is not happy with his creation. Notice with me in chapter 6, verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Something had happened. As we looked at last time together, when we saw the strife between Cain and Abel, we discovered that sin had already had its full effect upon man, to the point where brother could kill brother. Jealousy and envy could lead one to murder. But now, as time has passed and 1,600 years have passed, and the world is now populated as it is today... God now sees that the heart of man is wicked and in constant rebellion against him. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. And now it came to pass, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all in whom they've chose. Today we get a look at one of the most fascinating passages in the book of Genesis. I could say, I think, without doubt that it is one of the most debated passages in all of the book of Genesis. Something else happened on top of the heart of man turning towards a rebellion against God. That is, something occurred. It appears to be a supernatural event. And it all comes down to the identifying of this group of individuals called the sons of God. For the sons of God had seen that the women, the human women were beautiful and intermingled with them. And from that intermingling with them, having offsprings, that were uniquely described as giants, but in the Hebrew it is the word Nephilim. What happened here? 
There are three prominent views in the Christian community. The first view is that the sons of God were angels who left their proper sphere and intermarried with women on earth and formed a sexual disorder that was most hateful to God. Jude apparently writes about this in Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And those who hold to this view point out that the expression sons of God are found elsewhere in the Old Testament. For example, in Job 1.6, now there was a day when the sons of God, this is referring to angels, came to the pres- uh, present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Or in Job 2.1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. The sons of God is often used in a semantic way, meaning that a Jewish term for describing and also identifying angels. And Peter is familiar with this, and again in Jude 6 and now 7, he goes on to say that the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now notice, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, and are set forth as an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire, meaning that these angels stepped out of heaven and intermingled with women And from that intermingling, the Nephilim were born. Now, the main objection to this particular view is found in Matthew 22, verse 30. However, though, when they use this verse as an objection to this, they often misinterpret, I believe, the last two words. For in Matthew 22, 30, for the resurrection, uh, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven, meaning that angels don't marry. And some have concluded that they are incapable of any kind of procreation. But most scholars point out the the term in heaven, meaning that in heaven, this is not a capacity or something that is furthered. Procreation is not something that we find ever mentioned in heaven. Now, when angels appeared in the Old and New Testament, they often carried human form with them. When Abram saw Jesus coming to visit him and Sarah with the other two, he called them. Then I saw three men standing by him. Then also when we come to the book of Joshua, when the individuals, um, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, I should say, uh, saw not Joshua, but saw that the angels had come. They wanted sexual relationships with them. So it isn't uh, unheard of to believe that here on this earth it is possible for something like this to occur. But this isn't the only explanation, though I feel it is the best. There are also those who believe a second view that these 
are simply describing, the sons of God are simply describing the descendants of Seth. And the daughters of men who were the wicked offspring of Cain. And the argument is as follows. The preceding context deals with the descendants of Cain in chapter 4 and the descendants of Seth in chapter 5. And therefore in chapter 6, describing the intermarriage of these two lines. They also will object and say that the word angel is not found in this context. They also will describe that throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrews are called children of God. And that is correct. They are children of Israel, children of God. But never are they called sons of God in that same term. So the problem with this idea that it is the line of Seth intermingling with the line of Cain, and there are several problems, why are the Sethite men godly and all the women of Cain's lineage ungodly? Question number one. Also, there is no indication that Seth's line stayed godly, and if they did, why should they be destroyed? And then thirdly, why is it that the offspring of this relationship is described in the supernatural, unique term of Nephilim, and not simply just children. Now, there's raised a third view. This view is becoming more popular as time goes on. And this has to do with the sons of God being identified as the pagan kings of royal dynasties at that time who through the method of polygamy took many of the lines of the Hebrews and had relationships with them to populate and also to uh, bring about a larger pool of people for their kingdom. Now some who hold to this, and it is, a primary, it is becoming a primary view amongst many commentators and scholars today, believe that these kings were spiritually influenced in what they were doing. Meaning that it wasn't just a fleshly carnal desire, but there was a spiritual inclining and influence behind these uh, intermingling and these intermarriages, allowing for the uniqueness of the children born. Now we know that Ezekiel 28 and Daniel 10 both describe demonic forces behind kingdoms. On Wednesday, we're going to be diving into a passage of Scripture that I think many people have wondered, what is this truly saying? Who is this truly identifying? What did Paul mean when he talked about principalities and powers and so forth? Well, the ancient understanding was that anyone in any type of political authority, anyone who had authority over another, especially in Rome and so forth, there was the belief that there was a deity behind that individual that allowed that individual that authority over society. And I think Paul is using a play on words saying, yes, but that authority is not God. It is a demonic authority that God allows in that position of authority. Because then we have to balance it with Romans 13, knowing that God appoints authorities over us. Sometimes we don't understand why he appoints who he does. Do we? Sometimes he gives us, sometimes I think, what we deserve, right? Right? But that being said, 
I think that there is very interesting evidence here to say that in either case, something supernatural is taking place here in Genesis chapter 6. Now, I think the first view is still the most logical based on the context and the evidence found within. But there are those who will try to naturalize it and dismiss it and to say, well, there's nothing really to see here. But let us direct you to the Lord's response, starting in verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There are two prominent def- uh, interpretations of this verse. Number one, that God is now going to reduce the individual lifespan of, a, of an individual from 857 years on average down to 120 years, okay? But there's also another one that I think fits the context better, and that is that it's going to be 120 years from this point till the completion of the ark and also the judgment that is to come. That I am not going to put up with this any longer, It is an example of the long-suffering of God coming to an end, saying enough's enough. Judgment must occur. Now, I believe that that judgment had occurred not only for the wickedness found in man's heart, which we'll see in a moment, but also because of the pollution that was created through this intermarriage between these angels who had fallen and the women of the earth and the Nephilim created. Notice with me in verse 4, and there were giants. This is where the word Nephilim is found. On the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. This was an absolute result of the intermingling between the sons of God and the human women. These were men of old, men of renown. This term Nephilim, again, has been greatly debated among scholars. And yet, I think Merrill Unger, the famous scholar, who I really appreciate a lot of his work, said it this way. The Nephilim are considered by many as giant demagogues, unnatural offspring, the daughters of men, mortal women, in cohabitation with the sons of God, that is, angels. This utterly unnatural union, violating God's created order of being, was such a shocking abnormality as to necessitate the worldwide judgment of the flood. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who were formerly disobedient, speaking of these, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. What was the purpose of this intermingling between the sons of God and the daughters of men. I believe that it was none other than to try to distort, to pollute, and also to uh, destroy the promise of Genesis 3.15, that one would come 
and his heel would be bruised, and the Satan and the serpent's head would be crushed. I believe that this was to frustrate the lineage that would one day bring Messiah Jesus Christ. It was Satan's attempt to bring this to an end. Any hope of redemption, any hope of salvation eliminated by this distortion. And notice with me in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Notice with me where he saw this. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What God saw was the heart of man. He saw that that was the problem. And that every thought and every intent leaned towards evil. It had degraded to the point of no return. It was this intent and this evil and these thoughts of the heart that God saw and concluded must be judged. Notice with me in verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that He made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man, beasts, creeping things, and the birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But, and I'll leave it there for just a moment. It's very hard to imagine God coming to this point, isn't it? We see God as eternally long-suffering. We see His grace never-ending. It's difficult for us to believe that there is a line that God has determined that is a line that indicates a point of no return for His creation. It is this line that I believe that we are rapidly running towards here and now. Because I believe that just like the days of Noah were, so are the days today. And those days may be uh, a little unique to you in the sense that they may not look the way you think they should look. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But I want to let you guys know this, that the judgment of God is weighing and, of course, reigning over His creation right now. The book of Romans tells us very clearly that the wrath of God is upon all ungodliness. The book of Romans also tells us in Romans chapter 1 that there is a moment in time that God gives up. Now hear me again. The book of Romans chapter 1 tells us several times that there is a moment in time that God gives up. What do I mean by that? He gives us up to our debased mind. He gives us up to our unrighteousness. He gives us up to our internal lusts. He gives us up to defile ourselves, men with men, women with women. The book of Romans chapter 1 tells us clearly that the outward indication of this event, God giving up, is a rampant expansion and exception of lesbianism and homosexuality. I asked the question years ago from this pulpit, has God given up on America? Is it too late? Have we crossed the line of no return? Well, I can't say that definitively, so I'm always going to opt the other way, right? I'm going to pray that God does a work 
And that God, like he did in Nineveh, intercedes. And that people come to repentance. But if any nation in the world should be held accountable for the manner in which we have uh, just used unrighteously all of the blessings that God has given us, it's us, isn't it? It's the United States of America. We like to believe that if we sing loudly enough, God bless America during the 4th of July, that somehow, some way, that God can then dismiss all of the evil intents of man's heart that he sees. That God can just simply dismiss the wickedness that is continuing in our nation. And today now, we even have come to become desensitized to the understanding that they are now targeting our children with graphic pornography. Dina was telling me just recently that at school, uh, they hired a teacher that worked currently at kinder care. Being a Christian woman, she felt convicted and couldn't stay there any longer. One of the reasons she left was because there were posters hung around depicting the family, man with man, woman with woman, to create a sense and an environment of normalcy for this type of family structure. But what really broke this woman's uh, spirit was this, that they also had posters very low to the floor. So toddlers crawling could see them. They're coming after our kids. The state of Illinois is interceding in parental authority and allowing teenagers, minors, to transition apart from parental uh, permission. When do we say is enough is enough? How far do we go before God says that is it? The judgment of God is real. Remember what Jesus said. That he had not come into this world to condemn the world, but to save it. But he went on to say that the world is already condemned. We need to remember, folks, that we are fighting for the future. And we should be fighting on our knees. We should be asking God to intercede. We should be asking the Lord to do a work and to change people's hearts. I asked the question just last night at our fellowship group. Think of those doctors that are performing these transition uh, either through medication or surgically upon minors apart from parental uh, permission. Think of the doctor who would perform the mastectomy. Think of the nurse that administers the puberty blockers apart from parental permission. What form of evil would allow a person to do that? Think about that for a minute. Think about that, especially now that we know that these transitions do not bring a wholeness to a person. They aren't satisfied. They can often still wrestle with suicidal feelings that brought them to the hospital initially. Guys, things have gotten out of hand. And it's, we have to be honest with ourselves. This is much more uh, than just simply going to be resolved in one election. Do we agree with that? We need to be on our knees. We need to be asking God to intercede, to saving as many people as possible, to go on the recon mission. And why do I say that? Well, look at me with me in the Bible in verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah as we segue into it for next week. For Noah was a just man, 
perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. That is what God is looking for today. Individuals who are walking with him to stand in the gap. That is what God is looking for today. Noah begot his sons. But notice here in verse 11. The earth was also, also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, we could leave it there if it wasn't for something that Jesus said in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 pulls us into today, describing the last days that he had with an idiom that I think most misunderstand. In Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39, But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For, in, for as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. The question becomes, what did Jesus mean by the idiom that he used? There were eating and drinking, marriage, marrying and giving in marriage. There are many people who believe that our society will degrade to the point that it appears to be and resemble one of those apocalyptic movies that you've seen, right? The tumbleweeds blowing across everything devastated, people looking for water, people looking for shelter, you know, people scrounging around looking for items that they can find for usefulness. But that idiom carries with it, I think, a more sobering warning that I believe clearly is seen in our culture and in our society today. For now, Dr. William McDonald said it this way, that this idiom that we read here is describing an attitude of indifference towards God. Meaning, yes, you've told us that we're under a weight of judgment, but it's never going to come. It hasn't come. It's never going to come. Yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. We keep hearing it. Even Christians are becoming desensitized to the idea that God could return at any moment and that God's hand of judgment could fall at any time. Trust me, I thank God for the grace of God every day, don't you? I, I got to be honest, after all of these years of studying God's word, I don't understand his long suffering. I don't. There are many times I'd like to have brought the hammer down and then thank God that I wasn't God. You watch the news and you see the evil. And you're like, God, what are you waiting for? Well, he tells us what he's waiting for. William MacDonald, in his great commentary, wrote it this way. In those days, however, most people will be indifferent, that is, in the last days, just as they were in the days of Noah. Although the days before the flood were terribly wicked, that is not the feature emphasized here, he said, in the grammar. The people ate and drank and married and given in marriage. And in other words, they went through the routines of their life as if they were going to live forever. Though they, warned that, though they were warned that the flood was coming, they lived as if the flood, they were flood-proof, I should say. When it came, they were unprepared. They were outside the place of safety or salvation. It is just that way 
it will be just that way when Christ returns. Only those who are in Christ, the ark of safety, will be delivered. The famous Dr. John Wolvard, he said the same thing. But the period before the coming will be like the times of the days of Noah. People then were enjoying the normal pursuits of life with no awareness of imminent judgment. Life continued normally for the people of Noah's day, for they were eating and drinking, married and giving in marriage. But the flood came and took them all away. It was sudden and they were unprepared. And I believe that what finalizes this for me is found in 2 Peter chapter 3. Notice with me in verse 4, as Peter says this about those who were scoffing in the last days and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. It's, yeah, you've been talking about that. You've been talking about the end times for 30 years. You've been talking about Antichrist, the rapture, etc., the tribulation period. You've been talking about biblical prophecy for 30 years, and yet we are still here. Do you know how short 30 years is in the biblical timeline? Do you know that there are chapter divisions that are about 400 years in some places? Just between one and two chapters, you flip a page. It took 400 years. From chapter 4 of Genesis to chapter 6, we went through 1,656 years. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. You know, many people feel, well, I've continued on in my, in my sin and in, I've continued on in this lifestyle and God hasn't done anything. What a misinterpretation of the long-suffering of God. What a gross abuse of the long-suffering of God. Why is God waiting? Peter went on to say that in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, meaning He's going to keep it. As some have counted it slackness, meaning that He's forgot or He doesn't care, or worse yet, that He may condone our sin. But it is His long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's why God is waiting. That we all come to repentance. That's the heart of God. That should be our heart. Guys, we need to take a step back and we need to ask God to search our house, hearts to see if there be any wicked way in us. We need to take a moment and to clean the closets of our life out. And say, look at Lord, no more. I'm not going to play around with this sin anymore. I want to be full on for you. Not for my glory, but for yours. Guys, the reason I have this tone today, and the reason that this is so sober today, and the reason that I purposely didn't interject jokes today is because sin is not something to joke about. We have been laughing about sin for so long in this country that we now currently dismiss its seriousness. But I'm remembered each and every time that I read of the crucifixion of the seriousness of sin because this is what Christ needed to encounter to overcome the sin of man. The brutality that he suffered. How could anyone with a new heart read the Gospels or even watch a movie like The Passion of Christ and not be convicted in your heart about the sin that led him to that spot? our sin. 
Guys, we can't talk about the world and its unrighteousness if we ourselves are going to continue in unrighteousness. I am one of the biggest proponents of the grace of God. I have been called the epitome of the grace of God. I thought that was a compliment at first until I realized what epitome meant, meaning I'm an example of it. I think we should all give each other grace, but I think that if we are truly, truly going to respond to the gospel properly, we need to understand that there is this line. We don't know where that line is, but God does, where the long suffering will stop and the judgment of God shall occur. Now, we as Christians think, well, you know, I'll be raptured, I'll be taken before he pours out that you know, so be it. But do you ever notice that in the Bible it says that the hope of the return of Jesus Christ should lead us to holiness? That we should purify ourselves? You know, we should take stock, not in a self-righteous, but in a humble way. Saying, Lord, listen, I am so grateful for all that you have done for me, Lord. Help me overcome these things that my flesh weighs me down with. You know, releasing every weight of sin that we might, we might run the race to win. That's what we're looking for. Next time together, we're going to look at Noah and we're going to understand what it means for a believer to live in the last days together. But I don't know about you, but the wickedness that we see in the United States of America, if it's not the church going to stand up and say enough's enough of this lunacy and insanity, I don't know where else that's going to come from, do you? They're going after our kids, and I take that personally, don't you? Let us remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but of principalities and power. And this Wednesday, we're going to focus and drill down on that, and we're going to learn how to use the weapons of our warfare that are not carnal, but mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. That's what we need to do, right? We need to pull down the stronghold of wokeness over this country. We need to pull down the crazy insanity when it comes to our children and this insatiable appetite for abortion. Guys, if it's not going to come from us, who is it going to come from? If we're not going to stand up for the ones in whom Jesus said, if anyone stumble at any of these, it's better that a millstone be hung around their neck and they're cast into the sea, right? I think I read that somewhere. That is our Lord who said that. It has to start with us. And so I ask you today that if we're going to get into this fight, we have to throw off the old life, put on the new life, and then equip ourselves with the armor of God to take the gospel into this world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together in your word this morning. <clears throat> Father, I know that this was a somber Lord, because I think, it's, I think we got to take sin seriously, Lord. Father, help all of us who struggle in the flesh. We all struggle with something, Lord. And where sin abounds, grace abounds even further. But let us not be content with our sin. Let us not be, uh, appease our sin. Or let us not grow uh, comfortable with our sin or apathetic. But I pray, Lord, that we would just drag it out, repent of it, and allow you to free us from the bondage that it wants to keep us in, to hold us back from the victory that you have for us in, in and through Jesus Christ. Father, fill us with your spirit. Give us a, a spirit of boldness as we go forward into this world. 
that in the love of Jesus Christ, but also in the resolve of Christ, that we can stand up to the world and say enough's enough. Father, I don't know if you've given the United States over uh, to their debased mind or not. But until I know for sure, Lord, I'm going to continue, we're going to continue taking the gospel into our worlds, that people may see the light of Jesus Christ, that we would pass from death to life, from darkness to light, and that the only hope for these individuals is you. And so, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Let's stand for our closing song.